Thanks for tuning in to the Follow Church weekly message. Our hope and prayer is that you will find this message uplifting and challenging as we seek to follow Jesus in our community for His glory. Our Bible reading for today now, Romans chapter 3, verses 9 to 20. So you can follow along on the screen or if you've got a Bible with you, please read with me. But if you don't have access to a Bible, there are baskets down the aisles and you can grab a Bible and read along. And if you don't own a Bible, please feel free to take that home. That's our gift to you to read during the weekend and and, um, enjoy. So Romans 3, 9 to 20. What shall we conclude then? Do we have an advantage? Not at all. For we have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under the power of sin. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways, and the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sins. Good morning. I do want to apologise up front. I've had a bit of a cold this week, so if I do start coughing or sniffing, I apologise. But God is good, and I'm sure he will sustain me. The Lockie brought us the Bible reading this morning. Now, I don't know about you, but I found that really uplifting. No one is righteous, not even one. We all energised for the week now? That means none of us. I'm not. Virginia's not. None of us are. No one is righteous. When I first found out I was preaching on this passage, my honest reaction was, damn, how did I score this one? And I know how. I offered Dave to swap. (laughs) I really should have looked at what he was down for first. Because I was down for Romans 8, 28. You know, if God is for us, who can be against us? Yeah! I'm sure Dave will do a great job with that. <laughs> On the surface of this passage, there is no hope. And I've been thinking about this for a few weeks. And honestly, for most of that time, that's what I've thought. There is no hope in this. Why are we doing this? No one is righteous. And it was actually a couple of weeks ago, there was a big group of us that went and saw the heart of man. And it was during that movie that God revealed himself to me and went, that's it. That's the point of this passage. No one's righteous except through me. And that's when I saw it. The incredible hope that is in this passage. For those who haven't seen the movie... It's a documentary about a number of people tracing their journey through sexual immorality and sin to the point of healing, forgiveness and finding God. 
If you haven't seen it, it's well worth a watch. But I do want to warn you, it is quite confronting. The people included in the movie are very candid about what they've done, what they've been through. And the acted scenes that go with it can be quite violent. But it is profound, to say the least. So if you haven't seen it, definitely consider it, but I wouldn't suggest it for children. So the reason I bring that up is because that's where I found the message of this passage. We don't have a chance at righteousness by our own means. It's only as a result of Jesus' redeeming sacrifice. So before we go any further, will you join me in prayer? Our glorious Heavenly Father, as we open your word this morning, I pray that you will speak through me, that you will use me to bring your message for our church and humble us all to hear the words that you have for each one of us. Amen. So as I've already said, there is a freeing sense of hope to be found in this passage. But we must be careful not to dismiss the message that is here as being unnecessary as a result of that. So let's get stuck in. The title for today's, passage, for today's message is The Good, The Bad and The Uncomfortable. But I'm actually going to start in the middle of this. I'm going to start with the bad. Does anyone else like hearing the bad news first? Yep, excellent. I'm not alone. So the four of us will have a great time. <laughs> Verse 9 and 10 draws together the message Paul's been building up to from the start of the letter to the Romans. What shall we conclude then? Do we have any advantage? Not at all. For we have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under the power of sin. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. Plain and simple, everyone is under sin. Paul's chosen his words carefully. What he's trying to say here is that we're slaves to sin. Being under sin is a matter of domination. One commentator actually states that people by nature are addicted to sin. They're imprisoned under it, unable to free themselves by anything they can do. And Tim Keller goes further to say that Paul's astounding statement is that Jews and Gentiles, religious and unreligious, are all under sin. The person who lives a life of tremendous immorality and debauchery, who fits every description of Romans 1, 18 to 32, and the person who is conscientious and moral, are alike under sin. Luke was talking about this last week. We tend to qualify sin. We think some sins aren't as bad as others. And in the culture that we live in, it's hard not to. For instance, a murderer. We would expect someone who commits murder to get a harsher penalty than a child who steals a chocolate bar. If that wasn't the case, there would be public outcry. And I think that's justified. But in terms of eternal consequences of sin, is that the case? Romans 6.23 states that the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. 
there isn't a reference guide to go with this. There's no handy chart that we can go through like the match review panel with the AFL. Impact, high, low, we find the consequence. No, the wages of sin is death. All sin equals death. I read a really good illustration of this this week. There's three, three swimmers that set out from Hawaii to Japan. I don't know if I'm heading in the right direction here or not, but the first one can't swim. Seems like an interesting goal to have if you can't swim. He makes it just out of his depth and then drowns. The second is an average swimmer. He goes a few hundred metres, gets tired, and he too drowns. And the third swimmer is a champion swimmer. Holds the world, world record for the longest distance open water swim. Swims more than 50 kilometres. But eventually he too gets tired. His arms and legs get heavy. He's struggling to keep his head above water. And eventually he succumbs and drowns. Was one of these swimmers better than the others? Well, yeah. But is he any less dead? No. There are no degrees of lostness. So this message applies to us all. From here, Paul moves on to his greatest hits album, through the Old Testament, mostly from the Psalms, kind of like Paul McCartney, most of it comes from the Beatles. He may have had one or two good ones after that. There is a few references to Isaiah and Ecclesiastes in here as well. So let's get stuck in. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Verse 10 has already been covered, but we need to understand that this section is bookended by that statement. There is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who does good, not even one. And then in the middle we read, there is no one who understands. Well, to put it simply, who would choose sin if they understood what they were doing? Surely not. So it must be that no one truly understands. No one understands what they're doing and no one understands God and his nature. This is because there is no one who seeks God. Sinners don't look for God. Their attention's elsewhere, on anything that brings pleasure. Luke's talked recently about idols, so I don't need to go into detail about this. We know the theory behind this. There is no one who seeks God. They have turned away. Paul's language here implies a deliberate avoidance. It's not accidental. This is ingrained in us. And we know what is expected of us, but we turn away from God as a result. And as a result, we have together become worthless. Worthless. The New Living Translation uses the word useless. Look around the room. 
Can you see anyone worthless here? To be totally useless and worthless means to have no worth at all. I tried during the week to think of things that are totally useless. And other than a beta video player, I couldn't think of much. I'm not sure you can even plug them into a TV anymore. I thought about some of the stuff Christine's got that I think is worthless, like crochet hooks and knitting needles. And in my hands, they're useless. But to Christine, they're not. And I've got stuff like that too. My golf clubs, my guitars. To Christine, they're not worth much at all. Except that they take me away from her for a while. Give her some peace. Anything you think is worthless has worth to someone else. Even the worst invention in the world has worth to the inventor. And here Paul says that we are truly worthless. That's a bit of a stark reminder. So what is it then that characterises the sinner? Paul goes on quoting the Old Testament. Their tongues are open graves. Sorry, their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. And Paul's progressing here through the various organs that we use to speak. And he constructs a really clear image of the way that we use our words to harm each other. I've always loved the English language. I know that I've said before that I don't. When compared with the ancient Greek and Hebrew, I find that it is very limited. So it's more of a love-hate relationship. Because the English language is incredibly in intricate. We've got 26 letters that make 44 unique sounds. And with that, we can do incredible things. There is so much scope for creativity. And somehow, with that, we've ended up with words that sound the same, look different and, and mean something different. Or words that look the same, mean different, but sound the same, sound different. Anyway, I'm getting confused. And that's what the English language does. I don't know how anyone does this as a second language, to be honest. But these days, the way we use language doesn't seem at all creative. You can't go out in public these days without hearing people swearing. For me, that's the biggest insult to the origins of our language. It's just laziness. If you can't come up with something better to say, well, don't say anything. And it's not that I necessarily find it offensive, which you often do, I just get annoyed at the laziness. But my love of English goes far beyond getting aggravated by other people's laziness. I've long been in awe of the way poets and authors can craft language to convey incredible meaning. Songwriters, it's an incredible talent and I don't for a moment claim to be a part of that fraternity. But I can be quite good at crafting words. When I was younger, especially, 
I was very good at using words as a weapon. My brother was four years older than me. His name's Chris. So being four years older, he was always taller. He was stronger. He's actually a sportsman. Clearly, I'm a sportsman too. <laughs> Just esports. <laughs> Apparently, that's a thing now. Um, so I never had a chance against him in, in a physical fight. As brothers, that happened reasonably often. So I would use words. Because where he was playing basketball, I was reading books. At the age of five, I read a novel. Is it Charlotte's Web? My mum's here today. So the first novel I read was Charlotte's Web. I was in prep. My brother's first novel he read was last year. It's always fun when they're not here to defend themselves. No, he's actually now an incredibly smart person. Uh, proved me wrong, but far beyond any doubt. Has become quite successful. But when we were younger, I had the upper hand with academics. So anytime he annoyed me, I'd do the one thing that he couldn't fight back with. That was words. And even though every single time it would end badly for me physically, because he would retaliate the only way he knew how, I still got some sense of satisfaction out of that. Because I knew that I'd hurt him. Now, that's not something I'm proud of. It was back then. But words can be used to hurt. Imagine if we all took that effort and energy and put it into building each other up. That's still something that I struggle with today. There's people here who have been on the receiving end of that, unfortunately. And I thank those people for their grace in accepting my apology when needed. And I thank the people here who are able to speak into my life and are willing to speak into my life and help me to grow in this area because it's certainly something that I'm far from finished with. But this is something many people have an issue with. Whether it comes out in bursts of anger, being condescending, or engaging in gossip. Our words carry incredible power. We can build each other up or we can tear people down. But it's not just our words. Paul goes on quoting the Old Testament. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways and the way of peace they do not know. Paul's description escalates here to physical violence. One commentator refers to verse 15, their feet are swift to shed blood, pointing out the fact that this isn't a simple matter of taking extreme measures when pushed to the edge. Paul's saying people are eager for this. They want to shed blood. They're looking for opportunities. I'm sure if you think about your own life, you can probably sit back and go, well, I don't look forward to hurting people. But remember, Paul's using a small snippet to identify a bigger problem here. Ruin and misery mark their ways. Consequences naturally follow as a result of actions. And the way of peace they do not know. Paul isn't simply stating that people are not walking the path of peace. They don't know that there is one. As a result of our actions, we're separated from God. 
but we're also separating ourselves from each other. This is breaking down core relationships, stopping them before they can happen, isolating people. That's where the devil wants us to be. I can think of many people who I'm no longer friends with because we just drifted apart. Life took us in different directions. There's no animosity at all. And if I saw them, it would be exciting to catch up and find out what they're doing. But there's also people who I'm not friends with anymore for very different reasons. Whether it's something they did or something I did. An incompatibility of beliefs. For whatever those reasons are, we're no longer friends. And if you have a think... I'm sure that everyone here can think of at least one person who you've had a breakdown of friendship with. So it's here that Paul sums up this list. Quoting from Psalm 36, there is no fear of God before their eyes. Another quote from the Psalms, although not used here, is the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So Paul's not just saying that they don't have wisdom, but they don't even have the beginning of wisdom. They don't stand a chance. They're so far gone that they can't have wisdom. They hold no reverence from God. Instead, they fear other things. This is the capstone of all the quotes here. We can think of it as an exclamation mark on a poignant statement. It's the opposite of wisdom to not fear God. Many of our actions are driven by fear, but we place our fear in the wrong place. We might lie to cover up other mistakes because we're afraid of the consequences. We might lash out in anger before someone else has a chance to, trying to protect ourselves. We succumb to peer pressure because we're afraid of what others will think of us. Whatever it might be, it's misplaced fear. Surely, we should put more weight on our eternal judgment. Earlier, I referred to the language of being under sin as being a kind of slavery. Slaves are controlled using fear. But that's not the case with God. Fearing God isn't a matter of being controlled. It's a matter of understanding that He is God. He created us and He alone will judge us. Our eternal destiny is in His hands. But He wants us to be happy. He cares for our well-being. Just as a child in a loving family feels safe and happy, knowing that their family only wants what is best, that doesn't mean they don't know some level of fear. But it's not a fear that takes over their life. It's a fear that drives realistic expectations. We don't step in front of a truck on a freeway because we understand what will happen and we're afraid of the consequences, and rightly so. This is what God offers. Earlier we sang, I'm no longer a slave to fear, I am a child of God. That's the incredible freedom that God's offering us. We're no longer enslaved to fear or to sin because of Jesus' sacrifice. Which brings us to the good of today's message. Remember the good, the bad and the uncomfortable. No one is righteous. We fall short at times, but God sent Jesus 
to pay the price for our sins on the cross, to account for that fact. Only Jesus truly understands, seeks God and fears him. We can hold Jesus up against Paul's list and he alone in all of human history can answer every point. Yes, Jesus got angry at times. But as Luke explained to us recently, there's a difference between righteous and unrighteous anger. So why, if we're worthless, did God sacrifice his son for us? That's because none of us are worthless. No one is righteous, but no one is worthless. I love the way God works. Paul and Jen had no idea what I was going to be talking about today and still they chose to sing indescribable this morning. We sang the words, you see the depths of my heart and you love me the same. There's incredible truth in that. God knows the deepest thoughts, our deepest desires. And he goes, it's okay, I love you. That'll never change. And going back to my love of the English language, I have a favourite word. Philip Yancey describes this as the last best word, and that's grace. This is what we're talking about. We are saved by God's grace alone. Verses 19 and 20, Paul says, Now we know that whatever the law says, It says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the words of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. In Acts 13.39, we read, Through him, everyone who believes is set free from every sin, a justification you were not able to obtain under the law of Moses grace incredible grace unfathomable so we gladly accept God's grace in our lives and let's be honest we'd be silly not to but while we're saved from grace we must still take note of the sin in our lives and strive to rid ourselves of it not just some of it but all of it in John 8 When the Pharisees brought the adulterous woman before Jesus, he didn't condemn her and allow them to put her to death. Instead, he showed grace in saving her quite practically by reminding them that none of them were without sin. But it didn't stop there. Once that all left, Jesus spoke to the woman and he said clearly, go and leave your life of sin. It doesn't matter who we are. We are sinners, the bad, who are saved by grace, the good, which brings us to the uncomfortable. We each need to be constantly examining our lives 
What sin do you struggle with? Paul used examples of language and violence in this passage. But the message is broader than that. And we can't ignore Jesus' overarching command. Leave your life of sin. That in itself isn't always uncomfortable for everyone. Some people are actually really good at examining themselves, repenting and asking for forgiveness. The uncomfortable bit comes when it's time to forgive. So this week the challenge is not only to seek God's forgiveness, but to seek restoration with each other. Seek forgiveness for someone you've wronged and be forthcoming with forgiveness for wrongs done against you. That's the hard part. That's the uncomfortable part. God has shown incredible grace in order to save us from being separated from Him for eternity. But we struggle so much with showing grace to others. I read this week about a woman who was down and out. Things were so bad she had resorted to horrendous acts to sustain her drug habit. And when she finally sought help, she was asked if she'd ever thought of going to church. Church, she cried. Why would I go there? I already felt terrible about myself. That'd just make me feel worse. Is that the type of church we want to be part of? So what sin do you struggle with? Transformation doesn't cause salvation. But salvation causes transformation. We can transform ourselves to seem righteous. We can put up a front, make sure no one sees the bad stuff. Make sure everyone thinks we're holier than thou. That doesn't mean we're saved. Far from it. If that's the intention, I'd argue that we're not. But when we're saved, truly, we can't not be changed. Now, I haven't told him I'm going to say this, but there is an example that's been really clear to me in the last few weeks of this exact thing. I'm not going to go into specifics because we'll hear more from him next week when he gets baptised. But Chris Dale has shown me exactly that. <laughs> Sorry, Chris. Spending time with Chris over the last few weeks and getting to know him better, I've seen a young man who has been saved and that has changed him. It's impossible not to see if you get to know him. So I'm doing my best, Chris, to make sure you're the most popular person here. How can we not be? We can't accept God's grace in our lives without it changing us. We have to start by showing grace to each other. It's not enough to show grace to a new person who walks through the doors. It's easy to show grace to someone whose mistakes haven't affected us. But when we're on the receiving end of those mistakes, it's not so simple. And it's precisely those situations that cause people to think that Christians don't show grace. Because if we can't show grace to each other, how can we show it to the world? How can we spread God's grace to the world? We've heard it said here at Follow many times that if our theology doesn't go from our heads 
to our hearts, to our feet as we go, then it's an an immature theology. And we know that what the Bible says is true. It's God's revelation to us. But just knowing it isn't good enough. It must change the way we think, change the way we feel, and the way that we act as we share the gospel with our community. And if that process isn't making you feel uncomfortable, maybe it should be. Thanks for listening to our message this week. If it stirred your heart and you would like to talk to someone more about it or pray with someone, please get in touch with us at info at follow.church and one of our pastoral team will get back to you as soon as possible. If you'd like more information about Follow and our various ministries, including weekly service times and location, please check out our website, www.follow.church. Thanks again for joining us. God bless.